This episode of The Ziggler Show is brought to you by me, Kevin Miller. Come join me in my new Driven to Live community at driventolive.com, where we go beyond just listening to these podcasts and we engage with other driven people to ask questions and have real conversations on how to actually apply the incredible wisdom we hear to our own lives as we seek to transform ourselves into our full capacity. My guest in this episode is John Acuff, and you're about to hear what drives him and hear a message that is worth digging into. Join us to do just that. Dig in at driventolive.co. Coming up next in The Ziggler Show. So about 48 hours after the book came out, I would have people say, hey, John, I did your three steps. I retire, you know, replace, repeat. And the new one's not working. It's not working. And I would say, well, I know you haven't done it long because it's only, the book's only been out for 48 hours. And so often what happens, whether it's in a thought goal or whether it's in a physical goal or a spiritual goal, whatever, is I'll say to somebody, how's your goal going? And they'll say, well, the exercise doesn't work. And I'll say, how long have you done it? They'll say 10 days. I'll say, well, how long did it take you to gain the weight? They'll say 10 years. So you gave the problem 10 years to develop and the solution 10 days. So, you know, one of the soundtracks I use is never give the problem a year and the solution a week. And so we have to be more gracious to ourselves and more gracious to the solutions because there's some soundtracks that are really, really sticky. And you take this baby new soundtrack and you put it against one that's been doing push-ups in the prison yard for 10 years. And you go, I hope it works out. And you go, it's, it's not. You're going to have to repeat it. You're going to have to fortify it. Welcome to The Ziggler Show, a top-ranked all-time career podcast in Apple Podcasts. I'm your host, Kevin Miller. In this show, we expound on Zig Ziggler's be, do, and have philosophy, meaning you have to be the right kind of person and do the right things before you can expect to have what really matters in life. And we want you to have what matters. Also, check out my podcast, What Drives You, where we talk with people who have reached impressive achievements to ask what drove them, good and bad. And we dig into the very motives that drive us all with the goal of clarifying just what is driving you. Then in my True Life podcast, we want to get you fully functioning physically so your body doesn't hold you back. You can find all three of my shows in Apple Podcasts. Just search for Kevin Miller or go to my website, kevinmiller.co. And if you're new to The Ziggler Show, I invite you to visit ziggler.com. Connect with Tom Ziggler and the Ziggler family about upcoming events and how they can come alongside you and help you inspire your true performance. John Acuff is the New York Times bestselling author of seven books, including his most recent soundtracks, The Surprising Solution to Overthinking, which is our muse today. This is the second time I've had John on The Ziggler Show. He's got a knack for bringing profound personal development messages to us in an entertaining and highly digestible perspective. I admire his way to connect with where people are in the reality of their lives, a reality that, as you're about to hear, he says we manufacture. And I really agree. In this episode, you'll hear us dig into issues such as we think our memory is a GoPro recording reality when in fact we're just filtering it through our own cognitive biases, one that uh, we quickly decline in with memory consistency, but we base our beliefs on it. And John asks, you know, why is it so easy to repeat negative soundtracks about ourselves internally and so hard to repeat positive soundtracks about ourselves externally? And the premise of his new book and message is that we are living from soundtracks in our mind that we often need to retire, replace, and then repeat 
with the new ones over and over and over. John discusses with me how our brains build on overthinking's habit of negativity by doing three additional things, lying about our memories, confusing fake trauma with real trauma, and believing what it already believes. And we start in on his insight into no single good event in our life has as much lasting impact as trauma. So what do we do with that? Well, that's what you're about to hear. You could find John's new book soundtracks, of course, wherever you get books and connect further with him at acuff.me. First, John, I want to give you congrats on the 10K PR. Oh, thanks. Uh, see, I really have been stalking you. I saw that 4828, man. That's a respectable time uh, on, on a run like that. Yeah, I felt great. It was a, you could have asked for better weather. So perfect weather day. It was a, actually a cool day in September in Tennessee, which is not always the case. So I felt, I felt good about it. I've got a half marathon coming up um, in a couple weeks. So that was a good kind of warm up for the, the bigger distance. I appreciate that you also just made a focus on the fact that you're 45 and you ran a PR because as you know, that's not the norm. Most of your peers, and I'm going to say our peers. So I just turned 50 and, uh, they're not setting PRs uh, unless it's to see how long they can sit on the couch. That's mean, but you know, it's just true at this point. So, yeah, I mean, I guess for me, I look at it and, and say, you know, the, I've been thinking a lot about how our ability to focus hasn't scaled as fast as our ability to be distracted. So when you think about the scaling of Facebook versus the scaling of focus, that company has scaled a lot faster than our ability to focus. And that, you know, Twitter and all the distractions, Netflix, Hulu. And so I think it's just really easy. The older you get to be more distracted. And so for me, running is one of those things where it's like, there's very few distractions. I can do that. I can focus and I can make the most of my forties. And I think my fifties are going to be fun. And I think my sixties are going to be fun. And so that's kind of how I'm headed. Oh, good. I, again, I, I turned 50 and I feel like in some ways I'm in better overall health, even as a past pro athlete, it's still, you get so lopsided, uh, towards whatever your sport is that right now. And so, yeah, I'm looking at, I, now I can't, compete with my PRs from being a full-time athlete, but well, I don't have that. See, I didn't set a very high bar in my twenties. Maybe that's part of it too. I was, I was kind of a slouch in my twenties and thirties. So maybe I saved the best for last. And if I had been a pro athlete in my twenties, then yeah, maybe I'd be like, LeBron isn't going to be better at 50. It doesn't work on every person, but True. for my ability, I feel pretty good. I, mean, I like that. What you just said that the scale of focus first being distracted, there's another book right there. Yeah, I'm working on I'm working on a book right now um and that was an idea that just kind of came up and I realized you know there's there's a lot of distractions there's not a lot of focus and when you think about you know in the 80s and the 90s I just it was hitting me the other day that in the 90s I was never mad at another state's governor cuz I didn't know he or she existed. Yeah. There was not a single time when I was like I can't believe what that guy in Ohio is doing. I didn't know they existed but now because we have this global national news funnel, yeah. you can be distracted by a governor that you don't even vote in that state. You've never even been to that state, maybe. So it's just, I think we're living in interesting times when it comes to our ability it's, to get stuff done. I think it's unreal because it's, it's never 
ending something new. And we can't relate to that in our childhood. There was a finite amount of new stuff to look at during the yeah. day and then just go ride your bike because there's nothing else. Yeah. To and do. then just go be bored in a healthy way and yeah. figure something out and, you know, make a pile of dirt that you're going to jump off of. And that was, exactly. you know, so there's some, there's things like that, that I go, okay, I wonder what the long-term play of all this is. I don't know. And we'll do that show when you figure it out and write a book. Yeah. I'll let you know. Okay. Let you know this, Hey, this book. So I was checking out some of the reviews for your book and I'm going to read one because I really appreciate this guy, Daniel, I'm going to say Dorkson. Uh, I think it's a fairly new one. He says, no one really teaches you how to think as you grow up. He, he had me at hello, uh, right there because that's, a uh, because that's so true. He said, we cram our minds full of knowledge, but we pay no attention to the constant soundtracks playing in the background. Soundtracks that tell us life is hard, work is a grind, and you're not enough. Without sounding like some hokey infomercial motivator, so you can add that to your labels, yeah. Acuff not only exposed my faulty soundtracks, he helped me rewrite them. I'm grateful for this book and will be, th be thinking about thinking in a new way for many years to come. So he caught me there too. I had Michael Jr. on the show again recently, and he talked about that, thinking about what I'm thinking about. And I felt called to that in more depth in looking at the book, these soundtracks that we are playing. But back to what he said, no one really teaches you how to think as you grow up. And I felt somewhat like that was a bit of your rally cry with this book. A hundred percent. I think that most people don't even understand that they get to choose their thoughts. I think yeah. most people think a thought is something you have, not something you hone. And there's a big difference between those two things. And so I always tell people thoughts come by one of two ways, choice or chance. And you chance it. I mean, that's why people say I woke up on the wrong side of the bed. What does that mean? Like that your feelings determine today. Here's how you feel. Here's what you're going to think. And this determines the whole day or traffic ruined my day. I would never want to give Atlanta traffic that power because every day is going to suck. And so what's really fun is where you go, wait a second, I can choose my thoughts. I can be deliberate. Even my most type A friends who lay out their clothes the night before to make sure they go to the gym very few of them lay out their thoughts before something big. So they, they very few of them say, you know, Thursday I got a negotiation and the last negotiation didn't go well. And I know I'm going to go in there with this broken soundtrack that says they're out to get me. They're trying to take advantage of me. I don't want that plane. So instead, here's a soundtrack that I'm going to be thinking. I'm going to be thinking these thoughts during that meeting so that they turn into these actions, so that they turn into these results. And I think a lot of people don't understand that they have the permission and then the simple power to do that. How, well, again, back to what this guy said, how, how would we, I mean, we just were not thought that even, or, or taught that even with, I mean, I grew up on Zig. It's one of the reasons I'm here sure. is the voice of Ziggler show and understand positive thinking, which we'll get in here in, in a second, but it's still different than taking your thoughts captive. And what you brought me back to in this is that really it's, it's the rub of reality of, of, you know, what is reality? Because we think X just happened, you know, a chicken fell out of the sky and splatted on the pavement. It's just a fact. It's period. End of story. That is the reality, uh, as a bad analogy, cause I can't think of a good other explanation for that, but that's just my perception. Is it reality? It, it is my perception, but we just it's just so inconceivable to think that what we perceive is not the fact as we saw, heard, smelt, felt, tasted it. No, and it's changing. And that's the thing. Like I talk about that in the book that your mem how much your memories change. Um, and yes. there's so much research about 
your mind isn't a digital recorder telling you the truth of what happened and capturing an event. You're adding things to it. You're changing things. You're twisting things. I mean, somebody the other day told me, they said, John, one of my broken soundtracks is I've been saying, I'm so old, I'm so old, I'm so old. And so then he started to notice, wow, I forgot that. Or wow, I feel slower. Like, so essentially he sent his brain on a treasure hunt. Go prove that I'm old. Because your brain has cognitive bias and wants to believe the things it already believes. So if you practice saying, I'm so old, I'm so old, I'm so old, your brain will go, cool, we'll go find examples of that. No problem. And then you start to find them and then you start to look for them. So yeah, so much of it is going, wait a second, what do I desire to think? What would be, what would push me forward to think in this moment? Um, and that's what's fun. I, I, I said this in the book, the the cool thing is we're growing up in the age of neuroplasticity, which, you know, is the science that your thoughts can physically change the shape of your brain. My parents' generation didn't know that. You know, my parents' parents' generation didn't know that. They thought that smoking cigarettes during the Tour de France was good for their lungs because it opened up the capillaries, the nicotine. So they would smoke during the Tour de France. Now we look at that and go, that's crazy. In the same way that now we know thinking that the thoughts you have or the thoughts you're always going to have or you don't control them is as crazy as smoking cigarettes during the Tour de France. You get to change them. And I think that's what's really fun about this book and this experience for people is to go, wait a second. So I don't have to think that I get to change the story. I tell myself about myself. Mm -hmm. Well, if I, if I did, what would it be? What would a good story be? And, and how would I tell that? Uh, I appreciate the analogy. I started cycling in 1988 and I became a pro cyclist, but back then go out on a cold ride. I remember my first really cold ride and somebody pulled out. It was a little, remember what the camera rolls of film used to come in those little plastic oh, yeah. things, pulled it out and, and they had little shots of bourbon. They said, yeah, it'll make you warm and give you an energy burst. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, I was yeah. 17. It sounded really cool, but, uh, you talk, can you imagine training with bourbon now? Like somebody is like, make sure you're getting enough bourbon no. for that hill. We got a big hill ride coming up. Make no. sure you're bourboned up. It's I, gonna I, yeah, I, I'm going on a mountain bike ride with one of my sons and his high school team tomorrow. I should do that. Uh, yeah, just be like, hey, does everybody have fireball? Because this is going to be a challenging race. We need a lot of, we want to make white claw. We want to make white claw decisions. Like, no, that's. Hilarious. And they're going to believe me. I was a pro cyclist. I'll be the coolest dad ever. You'll be arrested, but initially you'll be pretty and, cool. For a moment. It's the moment that yeah. counts. Uh, you said, yeah, we think of, and I, I wrote this down right out of the book. You, we think our memory is a GoPro recording, you know, again, reality, but you mentioned cognitive bias a second ago, but you said in your studies that you guys did, we have a 60% decline in memory consistency. So that it reminds me of my friend talking about philosophy and, and, and Jesus. And he said, man, that just jacks up my dogma. That's what I thought when I read that to think of there's some, to some degree to think back to, so I'm 50 to think about something that happened in my thirties, my twenties when I was 15 and to realize to some degree, is there any way I can look back on that with a perspective that is actually truthful to some degree? No, I've, is that true? Well, is that fair to say? I've lost that well, ability. Well, I mean, so I think I think that there's there's a community aspect as well. That's part of why we need people. So I'll give you an okay. example. The other day, um, so I ran that 10K. You started off the episode talking about that. A friend of mine, good friend of mine who I run with, um, he didn't do the 10K with me. And he texted me and said, I'm so sorry. I, I bombed it. I should have done it with you. I promise you I'd do it. And I, I wrote him back and I screenshotted our text conversation from two weeks ago. We're not talking 10 years ago. 
I said, dude, you didn't say you'd do it. I told you I'm going to do this and you should sign up if you want to. You never said you'd do it. And he said, I thought I had sworn to you I would. I was sitting here feeling terrible that I wow. failed to do it with you. And so he, it was only weeks, but his brain was telling him, You're such a bad friend. I can't believe you let John down. And that wasn't my experience at all. In fact, I had a record of the real experience and could send that back to them. Him, he was surprised at that. So I think we need, sometimes it's having people that go, no, that's not, that's not what happened. You've, you've added to that. You've changed that. You've edited that. Um, and, that and there's so much research. Um, there's this book I've been reading and really enjoying called The Time Paradox um, by Philip Zimbardo um, and John Boyd. And one of um, their Stanford professors, and one of them was the, the professor who put together the Stanford prison experiment where they took some kids and said, you're prisoners, and some kids were prison guards. And it just was this huge kind of psychological study. Um, but they talk about that all the time that – you, you know, your perceived like what happened versus what really happened is not a one-to-one -one case. You add so much to it. So as far as can you, you know, at, at 50, could you say, here's exactly what happened at 22? I don't think you can. I don't think, I think you could say to, you know, a parent, a friend, somebody who was part of it too. Hey, this is what I remember. Is this your memory too? And they might go, well, here's a piece I have. Here's a piece you have, and you can reconstruct it. But as far as this is exactly what happened, um, unless you've got a journal and it's full of hundreds of pages, but even then the study where they took people and said, okay, where were you when the challenger exploded? Yeah. Um, it changed and they'd see their own handwriting and go, I don't know why I lied before. I know I was somewhere different. So even when they wrote the day after a week after, here's where I would was the challenger exploded. Here's where I would when the towers fail. They would say later, years later, no, that's not right. I remember it differently. So, I, I mean, it's just the, it's not the greatest reflection of what really happened. And if you determine your life based off what happened in your past and don't understand, like, then you get locked into that past that isn't actually true. And then it makes it really hard to enjoy your present and plan for your future. Where were you? Where was I when the towers fell? I was in um, Alpharetta. No, I, I was in Arlington, Massachusetts. I was listening to the Howard Stern radio show. I was out of work. I had no job. Massachusetts had a crazy, like huge amount of unemployment. So I was like, hey, hey, hey unemployment. And so I was writing um, and I heard Howard Stern in New York said, hey, you know, there's something going on at the World Trade Center. My wife was at work. Um, and so that that was how I found out that challenger. I was in the fourth grade and we like every other kid that year or that that season watched that live because Krista McAuliffe um, was a teacher. And so those are the two those are two moments I remember. But details outside of that, did my wife come home? Did I call her? I couldn't begin to tell you accurately what happened. Yeah. Well, now I'm curious as to what I really might have been doing. You I want to hit trauma, because when we look at that, that's where it gets a little dicey of questioning people's perspective, because if they have trauma, they were hurt. Of course, you don't want to hear that being minimized. And sure. I well, but I appreciate I feel like you did a good job in not minimizing that. If anything, you showcased I, I felt like that some of the traumas that we may that we may minimize, that we may say ah, I was just kind of benign. Uh, you talk about that, the little lunchroom incidents and, and your friends oh, yeah. wouldn't sit with you or, or whatever you did, that that trauma, especially social trauma, is really significant, maybe more so significant than the other things. And that no, I think this is right out of your book, no single good event has as much lasting impact as trauma. 
Yeah, yeah, that was one of the things that uh, Roy Baumeister did a study on that, that there's not in the English language, there's not a word that means the opposite of trauma yeah. that yeah. has the same impact. And what, what he means by that is there's not a word that classifies or summarizes you're in the grocery store and your brain all of a sudden goes, remember that joyful thing that happened seven years ago? And it washes over you where trauma yeah. does that. Trauma will go, oh, you're picking out frozen food. Remember that thing you said that was stupid in the meeting and you got into a lot of trouble and it'll be, it could be 10 years ago. And it feels like the moment as far as the social, like the social impact, that was a study um, where in the university of Michigan, they found that your body releases the same opioids to calm you down as it does during physical trauma, as it does even in fake trauma, even when the participants knew this is fake social rejection. I'm inside a study. I'm not really going to get hurt. The body reacting would go <gasps> panic, release opioids in the same way that it would if you got hit in the face by somebody physically. So that's where the example I used there was sometimes with our kids, I've got two teenage daughters. It's so tempting to go. It's not a big deal. It's not a big deal where you sit in the lunchroom, but to a 16 year old brain, it's the biggest deal. Yeah. It's a, you know, they're getting, you know, opioids released in their brain of this is traumatic that I no longer have a seat or my friend group is splintering, which happens in high school. Like that's part of it. And it's also the only, it's the biggest thing in their universe because their universe is only 16 years big. Yeah. So it gives you this, hopefully it gives you this empathy of, okay, I can see how somebody would react that way. And then the other thing, as far as trauma goes, and I'm by no means an expert in trauma um, is, is kind of this idea that if you got used to it, you assume other people have the, like you assume that's the normal and every adult has had some experience. Often it happens when you get married, you get married, you tell your spouse, Oh, well, this is how family treats each other. Or, oh, this is how, and the spouse sometimes will go, what? No, that's right. not, or friends will go, wait a second. That happened. That's a significant thing that didn't happen to all of us. That's a significant thing. And you get to process that and hopefully heal from that. So, yeah, it gets really interesting when we're able to go, OK, no wonder this was so significant to me. My brain works a certain way um, and thinks a certain way. Yeah, I have people send the crazy cycling videos and mountain biking of guys riding on the side of ledges and wrecks, especially, you know, these I, I mean, I, you know, can I handle it? Sure. But it's, it's dramatically uncomfortable for me. I could feel it just, I, oh, I, yeah. I know what the impact feels like. I, 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 the skateboarding, like watching skateboarding, in the Olympics, you know, and the guy slips and racks oh. himself. I just, I, I just don't care to see that. You are listening to The Ziggler Show in this episode with John Acuff on soundtracks. Again, find the book anywhere you get books and connect further with John at acuff.me. He also has a great podcast called All It Takes is a Goal. Next, we discuss what it really takes to get rid of an old soundtrack and plug in with a new one. So to take that, to take the power of that, and when we're looking at something and just back to, you know, you have a whole chapter on Zig, you know, in positive thinking yep. to say, here's something that you currently have a negative soundtrack going on. Let's replace that. Let's retire that, as you say, yep. and replace that with a positive one. That's not apples to apples. Is what no, and it takes time. That's been one of the surprises. So about 48 hours after the book came out, I would have people say, hey, John, I did your three steps. I retire, you know, replace, repeat. 
and the new one's not working. It's not working. And I would say, well, I know you haven't done it long because it's only, the book's only been out for 48 hours. And so often what happens, whether it's in a thought goal or whether it's in a physical goal or a spiritual goal, whatever, is I'll say to somebody, how's your goal going? And they'll say, well, the exercise doesn't work. And I'll say, how long have you done it? I'll say 10 days. I'll say, well, how long did it take you to gain the weight? They'll say 10 years. So you gave the problem 10 years to develop and the solution 10 days. So, you know, one of the soundtracks I use is never give the problem a year and the solution a week. And so we have to be more gracious to ourselves and more gracious to the solutions because there's some soundtracks that are really, really sticky. And you take this baby new soundtrack and you put it against one that's been doing push-ups in the prison yard for 10 years. And you go, I hope it works out. And you go, it's, it's not. You're going to have to repeat it. You're going to have to fortify it. I love to tell people stack the deck, you know, in your favor, stack the deck in your odds, like find a million ways to repeat the new one because like one of the things I say is fear comes free, hope takes work. Fear is going to find you. Like fear comes free, hope takes work. Negativity will find you. Like positivity takes work. I'm not a naturally positive person. Like people sometimes are surprised by that, but I work really hard at it because I see the benefits in my own life, in the lives of other people, in the lives of my kids, in the life of my wife. And so for me, I have to work at it. So oftentimes, you know, when you get this new soundtrack, it does take time. And that was what I tried to get across in the Zig chapter, in the chapter about the power of symbols was that there are times when knowing a new thought can change everything. Like an example that would be everybody's worked with somebody difficult. I remember I worked with this guy that was really difficult, really hard to get along with. And then I discovered that his wife had cancer. Yeah. And knowing that single sentence changed our entire relationship, changed what I knew about him, changed how I treated him. It was one sentence. But there's other times where you've got this kind of soundtrack that you've believed for a decade or maybe 20 years about yourself. And it takes work and you being deliberate to kind of retire that one and believe the new one. Well, to what you're saying, my thought is you can have a paradigm shift when you find out there is proof somewhat contrary to your perspective. Mm -hmm. But let's hit on that one because so as I was going through your book, I habitually do this. I'm reading it and I'm creating these notes and questions only to find out that you actually answered it later on in the book. And you did that with retiring broken soundtracks because here's this soundtrack that I am playing over and over that I am, let's say that I am impatient, which that's one I have. And I, I have a lot of proof actually that, that I'm impatient um, of my own volition of other people's testimony. So to just tell me, no, 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 do the zig thing, you know, do some self-talk cards and say, I'm a patient guy. And I'm thinking, what well, that's, I'm not, there is absolute, I've been accused over and over and over. Yeah. There's proof. Yeah. So just telling me there, and you get to that later in the book to say, question number one, is it true? And we, we do have to grapple with that. Yes. Yeah, well, so the reason there's three questions that I tell people to ask their loudest soundtracks, not every soundtrack. You have 60,000 thoughts, 50,000, right. whatever the number is. Who has time for that? I don't have time for that. You don't have time for that. So you find loud ones and you ask them three questions. Is it true? Is this thing that I'm listening to? Is this soundtrack? Is it true? The second question, though, is it helpful? The more I listen to it, does it push me forward or pull me back? And the third question is, is it kind? Because some things are true. 
It might be true that at this moment you are impatient, but is that helpful? Does that encourage you to change or does it make you feel ashamed, which makes you not do the work of changing, which keeps you in the cycle of being impatient? And is it kind? If, if a friend was struggling with that, would you say, well, yeah, that's who you are. That's your nature. That's who you'll always be. Because that's the problem. Soundtracks never travel alone. Broken soundtracks travel in packs. So what happens is I'm, pa- I'm impatient turns into I'll always be impatient. I've always been impatient. I'll never learn patience. There's all these other ones hidden in the shadows that ride in kind of on the coattails of the declaration that I'm impatient, I'm impatient versus going, I'm learning how to be patient. I'm not naturally patient, but I can learn that because I've learned other stuff that was even more difficult. I, you know, you're a, you're a pro cyclist. I guarantee learning how to be a pro cyclist was more difficult than learning how to be patient. It might not feel that way, but on the outside, I can tell you which one is more difficult for an individual to do. But again, your brain won't give you that proof. So you have to go, okay, it might be true that I'm impatient but is it helpful? And if it's not, if I can't say yes to all three of those questions, I got to retire them. Well, and to that, how much time did I devote to being a pro cyclist? It's, I mean, I put my 10,000 hours in, in oh, yeah. Malcolm Glad. How much have I put into being more patient? Not as much. We'll just, stick. yeah, I would say less, less, probably less. Okay. I'm going to come back still to retire the broken soundtrack. So here's that thing you're saying you may have proof. So you talk about your story of becoming a public speaker. Mm-hmm. And there was a time, you know, early on when that was a desire and you believed in it, you kept at it. You talked about, um, gosh, you referenced somebody, shoot, who was it? You referenced somebody who had a book and it was rejected, you know, some ridiculous amount of times. I can't remember who it was. Well, it feels like everybody has some degree of that story, but I mean, the woman who wrote the help was rejected. I think the number was 63 times. Okay. Okay. So 63 times rejected. Like there's so, I mean, if if you go back and forth, you can see that people who are successful very rarely is that they were successful in the first attempt. Okay. Agreed. So balance that then or reconcile if you will, because there's other folks out there Well, other folks, there's me. And you're also watching America's Got Talent. And they have the consummate showcase of the little town hopeful who just Mm -hmm. believes that she is the next Celine Dion. Her family supports that and thinks she is as well. And she gets on there. She's very, very much not. Well, so so to that point, I'd say I believe that um, compassion without truth is eventually cruelty. Compassion without truth is eventually cruelty. So it's cruel for her family to go. You are amazing you are the best singer that's ever lived because they're not telling her the truth. The word, like you're going to learn the truth in life. Either you're going to tell it to yourself. You're going to trust advisors that tell it to yourself. You're going to family tell it to you or the world will tell you eventually. And it's way more painful for the world to tell you that eventually than it is for you to go, okay, I'm not the best singer. I can learn how to be a better singer. I can learn how to do that. I might discover that I really want to be a songwriter. I live in Nashville. There are um ton of musicians here who said, I want to be a singer. I want to be a performer. I want to be a lead person. I want to be the front. They came to Nashville. That was not in the cards for them for a variety of reasons. And they decided, okay, instead of saying for 20 years, 30 years, I'm going to try to be the front man of a rock band, which at like 60, if it hasn't happened is depressing. 
they said, okay, I'm going to find another way to express the musical talent and ability I have and hone that. And I'm going to find fulfillment in that. So, yeah, I don't, I mean, I still think there's a, that's again, like, is it true? Is there, is there something where you can learn, you can do better? But I mean, I don't, when it comes to motivational stuff, so I get, I get kind of lumped in with the motivational movement, but there's so much nonsense out there that it just straight up lies to you. So the idea that you can be anything you want is not true. You can be the best version of you. That is true, but you can't be anything you want because I was never destined to be in the NBA. There are seven people in the history of the entire NBA who have been my height or shorter seven. So like you could do that. Well, Mark Wahlberg made the NFL in that movie. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's always exceptions, but the reality is it would have been really cruel if my parents said, John, I think with the right, if you just dribble a lot, like if you just learn, like you could, that's not helpful and it's not true. Invincible. I love that movie. That's what Invincible. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, That was the movie. I own it. I don't know why I could just watch that one over and over. I really like that movie. Um, retire. So in, again, in retiring these things, we'll go to that, go to that though, go into persistence. So you have, is there. Well, so, but with persistence, I, you know, I started to gather evidence. So I always say like people will say, okay, um, you know, what's the difference between preparedness and overthinking? And I always say, well, preparedness leads to action and evidence and overthinking just leads to more overthinking. So I, you know, it's not helpful if I just said, I can be a speaker, I can be a speaker, I can be a speaker. And then there's no evidence, but instead I was able to go, okay, I can be a speaker. I'm not there yet. Like my first speech was really clunky. My first 10 were really clunky. I don't know how to talk to hundred people. I don't know how to, you know, do crowd interaction. I don't know all these things, but I'm going to keep learning. I'm going to keep learning. And I start to see evidence. I start to go, okay, wow, I got those four people to laugh. Okay, maybe I can turn that into eight people next time. Maybe I can turn that into 12 people. Okay, I'm, you know, I'm going to keep working on this. I'm going to be proficient at this. Um, I'm going to, you know, figure this out. And so that, you know, you do start to see evidence as you work, but it, you know, it's like, for me, I always tell people like measure the effort, not the outcome. I control the effort. Like, but so like, I, I can't go, if I told you, I mean, I've never had a book become like a runaway bestseller. I, I just haven't. Like, I, do I want that? Of course. Like, I want the overnight, just like anybody. I want to, you know, Oprah reads the book at her doctor and is like, oh my gosh, I got to, but that hasn't happened. But I know through my ability, through my effort, I can continue to serve a lot of people in a lot of creative ways. And so, okay, I'm, I'm going to do that. But if I say my definition of if I keep going is if I sell a million copies or 2 million, or if it gets turned into a movie, like I'm going to quit early on. So there's that tension. There's that tension where you're measuring out, you're measuring evidence and going, okay, I'm starting to see some things. You're getting wise counsel um, and you kind of continue to kind of grow it. And that's what I did with public speaking. I had one thought. I think I can be a public speaker. I think I can be an author. I hadn't written a book, hadn't been paid to speak, had no, had nothing that proved that except the thought. And then I took the thought, I turned it into action and that turned into evidence. But I started with the thought. Okay, that's and that's what I was getting to. That there's there does have to be some evidence beyond your mom going, oh, that's really good. Yeah, uh, that I mean that's nice, but like at some point, like I always tell that you know, like you need a friend who will ask you hard questions. We all have a cheerleader friend who, no yeah. matter what we say, will be like, "That's the greatest idea ever. You should earn. You should own that many ferrets. Like you should get a ton of ferrets. That's great. Like we all have a friend that if we don't want to have our idea picked apart, we go to our cheerleader friend. Yeah. But you need a friend that will go. Wait a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. Slow down. Tell me that again. 
Like, you're going to do what? Like, why? You know, like convince that friend. Don't convince the cheerleader friend. Like that friend is just going to say rah, rah. So I think we do need people in our life that say, hey, I think you need to think about this angle. Hey, I think you and they encourage you, but it's also they're they're giving you truth. It's that's to me, that's the tension of building anything of significance. So we're taking the broken soundtrack, we're retiring that, we're replacing that with the new one. And then your third piece is repeat. And I want to hit on that because you don't just say that and walk away to the next chapter. You come back to that repeat, repeat. And you even get to the point of this has to be an anthem. And to what you said a minute ago, if it took you 10 years to gain that weight, you're not going to get rid of it in 10 days. So talk about the depth length that we need to repeat it and and going back to the trauma thing and with some things it's going to be dramatic you talk about things grooved in deep i mean it's it's a big groove that's in there yeah well it's it's definitely it's definitely gonna take work but i mean i'll give you an example i'll just pull this off the wall this is sitting right in front of me this is a note and the note says i love writing this book and i wrote that to myself on november 6 2019 so almost two years ago because i was forgetting how much I love writing the book I was writing because it was stressful. Books are hard. They're challenging. I mean, I don't, maybe there's a writer who's like, it feels like running through the field with a ribbon. I'm not that writer. Like it's challenging. And so I kept forgetting that. So I needed a new soundtrack and this isn't sexy. This isn't, I mean, it's not hooky. I just wrote myself. Remember, I love writing this book. I love writing this book. That's two years ago. As I work on the next book, I'm going to look at this. I probably have looked at this 5,000 times. Every time I sit down at this desk, I see this multiple times a day because that's what I need. I mean, the other thing I talk about is symbols of how do you tie a new soundtrack to a symbol? And that's just us recognizing what every brand in the world has recognized for years is that symbols matter. Symbols are motivating. I mean, the joke I do in the book is that Yeti found a way to turn a cooler into a symbol. Like people put a Yeti sticker on their car to let you know how they refrigerate things. Nobody in the nineties was like, I'm an igloo man. Now I want you to know how I keep things cold. Nobody did that. Yeti figured that out. Great brands figured that out. So that's the other thing. And so for me, I say, okay, if it's an important one, if it's a soundtrack, you really want to believe you really want to lean into find a bunch of different creative ways to support it. Find it, you know, don't just hope. Like I could hope that I remember that I love writing this book, but here's the thing. I got a lot of fears. I got a lot of stress. I got a lot of negativity. Why would I leave this thought alone in my head and go, hope it works out. I've got 40, at the time I had 43 years of evidence. Dude, it's not going to work out. We need at the minimum a note card with a piece of tape that we put like, if you don't want to do that, you probably don't care about the soundtrack anyway. Maybe there's a different soundtrack you need to focus on. The broken soundtrack. I had, again, in my going through the book and writing notes before I got to you addressing it had written, what are your thoughts on? Can we really get rid of it? Can we erase it? Can we override it? And then of course you come to the analogy of, no, that's the switch mentality. So I've been working yep. with the switch mentality and you said it is, and I'll, I won't steal your thunder. Well, I mean, that, and that's, I was having a conversation with a guy named David Thomas and he, he runs a counseling center here um, called Daystar for children and families. And he's just brilliant. And I was asking him all these questions about negativity and stress and you know, broken soundtracks. And he said, most people, their biggest problem is they want the soundtrack, the broken soundtrack, the negativity to be a switch. And so they look for a switch. So they go, okay, yoga, I'm going to do yoga. And it switches it off for a week and you think it's done. I'm done with stress. I'm done with negativity. And then life gets busy because life is stressful. Some more stress comes in and go, ah, yoga didn't work. 
it's the wrong switch. And they jump to a different switch oh. and they try that and j- switch with switch with switch, book, 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 course, 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 guru, guru, guru. And he said, but the problem is it's not a switch it's the dial. Life is going to get loud. Life is going to come up to 11. Life is going to get to a nine. And your job is to recognize that and then turn it down to go, Oh, whoa, I'm at an 11. Like no one, I mean, a perfect example is, no one saw the pandemic coming three years ago. Nobody was like, I better be ready. I better have my switch ready for the, we've all had to go, Whoa, I got, I'm at like a 12. I'm at a hundred. I need to dial this back. And when you do that, it frees you from the perfectionism of I'm one switch away from never feeling negativity again, or I'm one switch away yeah. from ever having stress again. And cause you feel like a constant failure because you find the switch and it works temporarily. And maybe again for a month, maybe for a week, but eventually the stress comes back in and you go, I blew it again. I got to go find another switch. And you, you just keep looking and looking and looking. And it's a really exhausting way to go through life. Well, it's, I mean, this is, we're, we're both sitting in the great United States of America, uh, which I am, I am not negative about this country I've chosen to live in. We do have some propensities. And one is we always talk about the microwave culture and I'm so oh, involved yeah. with health and wellness. And we want the pill. We want the thing that will fix it. We want the, we want the pill that will fix obesity. That is what we ultimately, I would love to come up with that and sell that because I yeah. would be the richest man on planet earth. And it doesn't. So this takes me away. Does this give me take you to giving yourself credit for the effort to some Well, degree. I mean, I, I think it gives you the, the chance to enjoy the effort, okay. like to see that the effort isn't failure. You see, when you have a switch mentality, you think there's one thing I can do that'll change everything. So if it right. takes a lot of effort, you feel like a failure. It shouldn't take this much effort. It shouldn't be this hard. And you said, there's a broken soundtrack too. Other people would figure this out faster than you. Right. What's taking so long? Like, why do you still struggle with this versus going, yeah, you know what? These type of situations tend to stress me out. So I'm going to come up with a couple of turndown techniques. I mean, I deleted Twitter from my phone like 16 months ago because I couldn't have that much anger in my pocket. I just mm-hmm. couldn't carry it around anymore. And I loved Twitter. It was probably the social media I used more than any other. But having it in my pocket, my phone, my thumb would go there automatically and I'd get stressed out. And I still use it on my computer because it's part of my job, but it's different. I don't have my laptop with me at the neighborhood pool. I don't have my laptop with me if I'm out at dinner with my family. So so I'm disconnected from a lot of that. So I just had to say, okay, I can't, I can't handle this. And so I'm going to put a boundary around this. That's one of my turndown techniques. And so, yeah, I think it just frees you up to really enjoy the effort versus seeing the effort as a nuisance or the effort as an inconvenience or the effort as a sign you're not doing it fast enough. Yeah. Our propensity to be all or nothing, which I succumb to as well. So you talked about this one kind of chewed on me a little bit, John. Why is it so easy to repeat negative soundtracks about myself internally and so hard to repeat positive soundtracks about myself? Now, you said externally, but I'm going to say internally either way. Sure. Why is it so easy and it almost feels relevant and okay to do the negative soundtracks, to be self-deprecating. When we do that, even to be funny, um, that's a habit of mine to deal with pride issues. I I think that I come to, and so difficult because it sounds, we think, I mean, think of the words. If you start talking about yourself positively right away, think about, Oh, he's, you know, self-focused, egotistical, narcissistic, especially in today's day and age. Yeah. Yeah. Brag. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we learn that. When do you go from, I mean, brag, that's like a, I mean, I've got, I've still got little kids and, where is that? They're okay right now. I've got a 10 year, I've got an 11 year old. 
it's okay for him to brag. I mean, everybody's cool with it. Yeah. It's going to, there's going to talk about a switch. There's going to be one. And all of a sudden it's, I don't know where that is. Yeah. I mean, I think part of it, I mean, I think there's a variety of reasons that this, that this happens. Um, you know, if you're our age, I think for me personally, in the past, I've used the negativity or the stress or the chaos to accomplish some stuff. I've used it as a fuel and it's a, it's a good short-term fuel. It's not a good long-term fuel. So this kind of came to a head where it was maybe 12 years ago. I had an ad agency that I had started and it just fell apart. Huge failure. And I had to kind of swoop in and save this one client relationship. And I learned in that moment, I can function in a crisis. That's a true soundtrack. That's good. That was helpful. But it mutated over time. Like our, like we don't tend to quietly without work turn positive. Like I've never, and, th- and that works on every goal. I've never met somebody who said, yeah, I wasn't even intending to get a shape, but I just looked up one day while I was binge watching Netflix and I was doing burpees. Like I didn't even mean to, like just, <laughs> right. it just happened. Like I looked up one day right. and I was reading really good books all of a sudden for no reason. Mm-hmm. Like we don't kind of roll uphill, so to speak. Hmm. So my soundtrack changed over time from I can function in a crisis to I function best in a crisis, which is subtle, but pretty toxic. And then it changed into I need a crisis to function. So in order for me to get amplified or up or energetic for a thing, it had to be something to save. And every listener has worked with a leader who is great at putting out fires. And in the absence of a fire, they feel worthless and leaders don't like feeling worthless. So they start a fire. And they kick over the anthill or whatever language you want to use. And so four years ago, my wife basically said, hey, you're a jerk for the two years when you write a book. You're a jerk for the two years when you sell it. And that's not going to do it. Like, Hmm. that ain't it. And she said, I'd rather you be a happy plumber than a miserable writer. So you need to, like, do some work on that. And so I think that's part of it. Sometimes you've used negativity to accomplish things. You've used fear to accomplish things. You've used crisis or stress or whatever. And again, it's an okay fuel, but it doesn't burn pure like it eventually empties you out. It makes you really difficult to be with. It's not sustainable when there's no longer a crisis you have to pretend there is or start one. So I think sometimes that's part of it. And then I think that negativity um, gives us somewhere to hide where positivity kind of exposes us. Um, I can I can complain and people will commiserate with me. But if I say, hey, I had a really good day. Like I really, this thing went great. Somebody will say humble brag or like, well, my, this bad thing happened to me. And, you know, like, this is a terrible, like, how dare you say that versus if you complain, people complain with you. If you share something that went well, people often try to make you feel guilty about that. And so I think culturally we have a hard time, which is why a good mastermind always has an element of what I would call the brag table where you get to go like, dude, I killed this. I just killed this thing and it went so well. And I'm so excited because there's no other place in life where I think that's celebrated to that degree. That's interesting. You know, it got me to thinking, John, just as you're talking there, that when we, if we say that positive thing about ourselves, that, that honest, there's, as opposed to the negative, there's accountability that comes with it all of a sudden. Yeah. I don't have to be yeah. accountable for bragging on myself. No, no. And there's expectation too. Like, that's the other thing is that another broken soundtrack that a lot of people struggle with is I, I don't want to have a high expectation to meet. I'd rather surprise you with my performance. So that was one that I had to retire. So I'm more, you know, back to me becoming a public speaker. No one's ever heard of me. I'm working really hard. Nobody can see me working really hard. So when I show up at a catalyst or some event, I'm a young guy, no one's heard of. And I've got something that I've put together that it's not amazing, but it's better than they expected. And people go, oh, this guy is funny. He's interesting, whatever. I get to surprise you. But now fast forward, it's 13 years later. 
Microsoft hires me to speak to the Xbox team, they don't want to be surprised. They want me to deliver. They didn't, they hired me on purpose. I have, I now have a high expectation bar and I should like, that's what I want. No one ever goes, it was so surprising that, that Michael Jordan, you know, scored 30, like they never. So eventually, like if you're going to perform, it changes from, I get to surprise people to I better deliver. And that can be challenging. That can be hard. And so sometimes we, we kind of, in order to fight that, we'll, we'll self-denigrate or we'll, we'll kind of, you know, criticize ourselves so that hopefully we can then come back around and go, ah, I did the thing versus going, that's what I do. Like, I, I, I'm really working hard at this and I have an expectation and so do you and I want to exceed that even though it's high. Goodness. I think I do that with some, I'm thinking about, I do, I do these big wood projects. It's kind of a hobby thing at home, you know, build a deck, build a roof, build a bed. And I generally don't say a whole lot about it. I just kind of go after it and then step back and it's like, oh, cool. Dad, either way, I'm a hero, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. As opposed to saying, I'm going to build the coolest bunk bed you have ever seen. Yeah. Because I might not, because I'm really not that good. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, I know. So it's an interesting thing to wrestle with. And again, like as you kind of progress in any, any craft, any goal, any whatever, I think you have, you get to this place where you have to be honest and you have to challenge yourself versus going, I'm going to set such low expectations that when I exceed them, I feel good. Cause then you're like, then you're setting yourself for low expectations and you don't get to really reach up as high as I think you're capable of. Okay. I want to land on what you just said, having to be honest, because when we go back to, well, again, you gave a great chapter to Zig Ziglar, uh, into the self-talk cards, which you tried, which, which folks, yeah. In, in, uh, saying that if you go to Ziglar.com slash self-talk, you can get the cards. So John talks about it in the book. You can download them right there. I think there's two versions. There's a kind of a, a, a regular, uh, we call it, we'd call it secular. And then there's a Christ, Christian version, sure. but you can download them right there. But in John's book in soundtrack, he gives another concept on that. But you do talk about what we all feel is the goofiness of standing in front of a mirror yeah. and speaking these things kind of back to my patient thing. I'm a patient man. Well, that's like the most dishonest thing to say. But if we, and you wrote it in the book, if we think about it, and I guess you could even say it in terms of this is the person I am becoming. Mm-hmm. Fair? Well, and that was, that was you know, I, I had the chance to interview Tom and yeah. I got to have lunch with um, Zig and his wife, Jean, years and years ago before he passed away. and 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 that was where, I didn't want to study uh, positive thinking. I, I grew up pretty jaded, pretty cynical, pretty sarcastic, you know, the age of uh, Serenity Now and Seinfeld. And I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. Doggone it. People like me. Stuart, yeah. Yeah. And, but all these successful people, when I would talk to them off mic or off camera and I'd go, what do you think about affirmations? What do you think about, you know, self-talk? They'd kind of be like, well, I got a pep talk I give myself or oh, I got some words to say like, and I thought, okay, well, let me, let me go test this. And that's why I went to Zig. Cause I look at Zig as, you know, one of the godfathers of the modern motivational movement. Um, and so tested it myself um, and really, really could see a difference. And so when I talked to Tom about it, so I would say that the chapter where I write about Zig, um, Tom, his son, I played what I call stump, the, stump the Ziggler. Like I just tried to feel like, well, what about, what about, what about like asking all the like, but what about, what about this? What about this? And he had an answer for it. And one of them was, there's a difference between lying and telling the truth in advance. And the lie is, and he, he did a great example. He said, the lie is I'm in the best shape of my life. If your brain knows you're not, 
it creates cognitive dissonance. Right. And I, as I would say, you never fix an old lie with a new one. And so what's way better to say is I'm going to tell the truth in advance. And the example in the book that, um, from Tom was I'm getting fitter and fitter every day in every way. Like I'm making progress. And so that's, you know, like same with the self-affirmation, like I'm a patient person, like I have that ability and I'm going to like, I'm now telling my brain, let's find examples of that and let's find chances to practice. So like when I make a goal of, I want to serve people, my brain goes, okay, cool. Let's find some examples of ways we can do that this week. Or like, Hey, let's, let's look for that this week. And if I say I'm a servant of others, that turns my brain on the go. Okay, cool. Let's go prove that. Let's make that true. Let's make that true. And that to me feels like the Ziegler approach of telling the truth in advance. Yeah. Kind of like a prophetic statement about yourself. This is what I'm going to, uh, going to go towards my goal is and what you actually talk about it. And I, I appreciate it in, in regards to primer thoughts. I am priming myself and I really, it's the age old Henry Ford, whether you think you can or think you can't, yeah. you're right. And we, we all know it. We all yeah. nod to it, but I think we're back to, we never were taught how to actually think that way. And if I think about whatever I'm saying or thinking internal, external is a primer thought that's going to increase or de decrease my capacity, my capability. Well, and that's where that's the, the challenge there is that a lot of books about thinking get really holistic and really fuzzy pretty yeah, quickly. True. Um, and so I tried to make this one as actionable as possible. So we said like, cause ultimately I don't, you know, the, the book hasn't done its job. If you just get some nice new thoughts, the book does its job where you turn those thoughts into actions and you see different results. Like one of my favorite stories was a guy named Sal St. Germain, who was an electrical manager in Hawaii he felt like his team at work was handcuffed by the parent organization. Everyone listening has had a moment like that where you go, oh, if our bosses really understood, or oh, if the executives. And so he decided to ask that first question, is it true? Is it true that they're holding us back? He went and asked his manager. His manager said, no, not, not even a little bit. We look to you as experts, like tell us what to do. We're waiting for you to tell us. And he said, it turned us from victims into partners. That one question, that new thought of we are the experts, they save $14 million over a five-year period. So when I, you know, that's the fun application to me of this with culture, with, with churches, with teams, with companies, is that all a culture is at a company is a group of soundtracks people are listening to at the same time. And most of the time they're accidental, they're not picked on purpose. But whether you're an individual, whether you're a family, whether you're a couple, you have soundtracks. The question is, will they be soundtracks that create the kind of relationship you want, the kind of company you want, the kind of person you want to be, um, or will they be accidental that just kind of show up and hold you back from being what could really be? That's what's so fun to me about this concept. Well, and the book, I appreciate it, John. I'll testify. It is not fuzzy. Uh, it's plain speak. It's compassionate speak. It's actionable speak. And the cover's really, really smart too. It's just brilliant. I, I can take no credit for the cover. I That's so good. Usually it takes 50 drafts to come up with a cover. Um, and a company, I believe their name is Faceout. There was a design studio on the West Coast. I think they're in Oregon maybe called Faceout. That was in the very first round of, of drafts they showed us. And I, everyone that saw it was like, what? I was so happy. Like we had spent like six months talking about the concept of soundtracks and then they came up with that cover. So all credit to them. Okay. Um, but it, yeah, I like for me, that was so fun to see. They did such a good job. With well, that. it does justice to the book because of course we do still judge a book by its cover and this is worth judging uh, as brilliantly as the, the front cover. Man, thank you. Thanks for, for writing 
writing this. I, it was so good. I'm gonna, I want my kids right off the bat uh, to read it. Uh, they'll enjoy it, I know. And again, it just resonates. You make it so uh, not entertaining, but methodical and the points stick out and help us think about this concept of thinking about what we're thinking about so differently. So John, thank you. And thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Yeah. Thanks for having me today, Kevin. I appreciate it. This episode topic on soundtracks with John Acuff is just big medicine. I really encourage you to get his book, Soundtracks. You'll be entertained and further entrenched in the opportunity of creating new soundtracks that bring you life and get rid of the old soundtracks that give you death to many degrees. And if you want to engage on the topic with other aspiring and driven people like yourself, come join us in my new driven to live.co community, where we'll be taking this podcast to task as we discuss how to apply it to our individual lives. Again, you can find John's book, Soundtracks, anywhere you get books, connect with him at acuff.me and check out his podcast. All it takes is a goal. Coming up in episode 946 of The Ziggler Show, join Tom Ziggler and myself as we discuss responses to my question, what are the top three leadership challenges you see in business as a business owner or as an employee? Till then, thank you as always for letting me walk with you as we inspire our true performance together. Together.